My name is Adrian Muir-Smith. And for over 15 years, I was a criminal defence lawyer and represented thousands of individuals, many having committed the ultimate crime, murder. I gained a rare insight into the criminal mind and still was often horrified witnessing the cruelty of men. However, the nature of these more recent crimes pale in comparison to the dark deeds occurring over the centuries in Scotland's capital city. Edinburgh is truly one of the greatest cities in the world, and whilst its castles, streets and characters may seem familiar to you, there is a darker side to its history that until now has been hidden from view. I have uncovered the murky past of Edinburgh's Royal Mile, and the stories I will share with you in this series of podcasts are no ordinary crimes, murders by lords and kings, the riotous Edinburgh mob, murders by so-called resurrectionists and men so dangerous they were transported to our furthest penal colonies. For the first time I will reveal Edinburgh's criminal past and its blood which stains the very cobbles under our feet. These are gruesome tales motivated by ambition, greed and betrayal. All of this cruel violence played out in one of the world's greatest thoroughfares, the Royal Mile of Murder. The city of Edinburgh had faced armies and threats of rebellion from the famous Jacobites and had even gone so far as to build a wall to defend itself from these invaders. And within the city boundaries, it had encountered mutinies started by its own citizens. The main troublemakers known as the Edinburgh mob were the riotous underclass of this tumultuous city. And during this time of civil unrest, the criminal enterprises of well-known smugglers and their arrest, trial and conviction leads to a spectacular escape from custody a dramatic public execution and mobbing and rioting in the Royal Mile. And at the centre of all this drama is Captain John Porteous, the son of an Edinburgh tailor. He'd been a soldier serving his country in the battlefields of Europe, but had returned home, joining the city guard to protect the citizens of Edinburgh. In April 1736, Captain Porteous is in command of the city guard during a public hanging when a riot breaks out. The events that followed shook Edinburgh society to its core, and for reasons I just cannot understand, a wall of secrecy surrounds this story even today. Over a series of four episodes, I will bring this unspoken history of Edinburgh back to life. This is one of the Royal Mile's darkest secrets. So what was the spark that ignited this story? After hundreds of years of separate nations, Scotland and its old enemy England are now unified. However, the making of this new nation is not without its objectors. Many Scottish citizens dislike the influence and control England enjoyed over Scotland. In particular, they resented any new taxes or duties inflicted upon them by their bullying neighbour. Scotland was frankly failing to pay its proper share of taxes, and so the government established the Commissioners of Excise and Customs. 
However, despite the government's best efforts, the ever-resourceful Scots found other ways to avoid paying tax. In retaliation, the government decided to hit them where it hurts. The favourite local ale was known as the Tippany, and until this time the Scots had been drinking this duty-free. A bold decision was made to raise £20,000 by imposing a tax of thruppins on every barrel of beer. And the reaction to this new tax? Uproar. In Glasgow, a city 50 miles from Edinburgh, a horde of citizens described as breathing beer and vengeance armed themselves with hatchets and other weapons and wrecked the mansion house of a local MP who had been foolish enough to openly support the introduction of this very unpopular tax. Even then, politicians faced violence and intimidation. This new tax only increased the Scottish passion for smuggling. As one writer said, it means much to a man to be able to buy brandy at a third of the duty rate and tea and tobacco half price. The Kingdom of Fife, a county about 20 miles north of Edinburgh, had an array of small seaports, each with their own daring gang of smugglers. And the most famous of all was a part-time baker, Andrew Wilson. Wilson had once made great fortunes from smuggling, but the increasing effectiveness of the excisemen had significantly eroded his main source of income. And so, with his cash flow declining, it was time for one final escapade. And in Pittenweem, a small fishing village on the east coast of Fife, the boldest and most ill-advised of Wilson's crimes plays out. An excised man, his saddlebags bulging with money, is spending the night in a local alehouse, which also serves as his office. Wilson, along with two of his fellow smugglers, William Hall and George Robertson, travel from Leith by boat and make their way to Pitt and Weem. Upon their arrival, they burst into the alehouse, threaten the landlady and locate the excise man's room. They attempt to break in to steal the saddlebags. The exciseman barricades his door with a table and chairs, giving him just enough time to grab the bags, jump out of the window and escape into the dark night. Another exciseman, who is staying in the same alehouse, hears the commotion. When one of the smugglers shout, Murder the dogs and burn the house! He is convinced his colleague has been robbed, or even murdered, and knows there are soldiers in town. He runs off to find them, and quickly returns with a sergeant and two fusiliers. All three smugglers are quickly captured and arrested. All items they manage to steal are recovered, and the three smugglers are taken to Edinburgh to stand trial on charges of robbery and housebreaking. Within just two months of their arrest in Pitt and Weem, their trial is about to start in the High Court of his justiciary. The High Court is situated in Parliament House, beside St Giles Cathedral and the Royal Mile. It is Scotland's supreme criminal court and deals with only the most serious cases. The evidence against the three smugglers is overwhelming and all are convicted. Robbery and housebreaking are serious crimes and the government's collector of taxes must be protected. The inevitable sentence is pronounced by the court. They will be executed in the grass market within the month. Hall, one of the three smugglers, has been promised a pardon for incriminating his two accomplices. 
This promise is not kept, but at least the death sentence is commuted, and he will be transported to the colonies for life. The two remaining smugglers, Wilson and Robertson, are still incarcerated in the Tollbooth jail, waiting for their day of reckoning. The Tollbooth once stood right in the middle of the Royal Mile, and throughout its long history as Edinburgh's main jail, it enjoyed a fearsome reputation for its appalling conditions and brutal treatment of its prisoners. It was a truly menacing building, and was once perfectly described as antique in form, gloomy and haggard, its black stanchioned windows opening through dingy walls like the aperture of a hearse. If you stand near St Giles Cathedral today, you will see a heart-shaped mosaic, formed in coloured granite sets built into the pavement. This mosaic, drenched in tradition and smothered in ritual, is known as the Heart of Midlothian and marks the original entrance to the Tollbooth. The Tollbooth is now gone, demolished over 200 years ago. Today, as passers-by reflect on the horrors that took place within its walls, you will see them spit in the Heart of Midlothian for good luck. A few days before the date of the execution, a gang of Wilson and Robertson's friends dressed in female clothing approach the toll booth and knock out one of the guards. They then gather round the toll booth and sing psalms at the top of their voices. This is not a religious celebration, but an inspired attempt to distract the remaining guards and conceal the noise of sawing and banging. Wilson and Robertson are trying to break out of jail. They remove their shackles and with the help of other prisoners, they rip open the ceiling, allowing them to climb into the cells above them. If they are able to cut through iron bars, they can make their way out onto the roof and escape. However, Wilson is strong and stocky and becomes stuck in the bars. The guards eventually realize what is happening and prevent an escape. Wilson and Robertson remain in custody to face the hangman in a few short days. Two days later, Wilson and Robertson, watched over by four members of the city guard, are taken to the Tollbooth Church. Oddly enough, the purpose of their visit is to hear their own funeral sermon. As the bells ring during the church service, Robertson sees the church doors remaining open, and he seizes the opportunity. He jumps over one pew, then leaps over others, scattering the collection money. Many in the church are admirers of the smugglers, and open up an escape path for them, through the midst of the congregation, allowing Robertson to quickly disappear into the closes and winds of the Royal Mile. Wilson tries to follow him, but he is grabbed by the city guard, and although he is unable to escape, he struggles with the four soldiers and delays their efforts to chase after Robertson as he bolts along the Royal Mile. The city guard was established in the late 17th century to protect the citizens of Edinburgh. As a result of the Jacobite uprisings in the early 18th century, the Lord Provost and the local magistrates recruited additional men. Their uniform was a military cloak and a cocked hat, and they were described by one chronicler as having sufficient spirit to render them formidable in a street brawl. The city guard, in truth, was full of battle-hardened military veterans, experts at wielding a locabre axe, a fearsome battle axe thought to have originated from the Western Highlands. 
The axe has a broad blade sitting at the top of a long wooden shaft. It also featured a cleek or iron hook attached to the back of the blade, which could be used to grapple an enemy on horseback or even grab hold of an escaped prisoner. However, despite all their fine clothes and fearsome weaponry, they fail to recapture Robertson. He manages to escape, running through the narrow and winding closes, scattered along Royal Mile and then down Parliament steps into the Cowgate, with the crowds obstructing anybody who tries to capture him. As pre-planned, he met his friend in Duddingston, who removed his handcuffs and gave him a horse. With his city guards still in pursuit, Robertson rode off to Dunbar, a small port 20 or so miles east of Edinburgh. This was a dramatic escape and a huge embarrassment for the city guard. In a desperate attempt to recapture him, the local magistrates place an advert in a newspaper offering a huge award of £50 for information as to Robertson's whereabouts. Not a single person steps forward to help and the reward is never claimed. So let me summarise the story so far. The introduction of attacks on ale was hugely unpopular, and although our three smugglers ended up involved in more serious crimes, the public still supported them. Of the three men originally convicted and sentenced to be hanged, Hall was deported to the colonies, and Robertson escaped by riding all the way to Dunbar, boarding a ship and sailing to freedom in Holland. He was never seen in Scotland again. So we are left with one smuggler, the ringleader Wilson, and the city guard cannot allow him to escape justice. And it is now that Captain John Porteous joins our story. As a captain in the city guard, he is both feared and despised by the Edinburgh mob. He is known to be a hard, tough and ruthless soldier, and is described as a truly terrifying character. But how much do we actually know about him? In his biography, he was described as being of middle-sized, broad-shouldered, strong-limbed and short-necked, his face a little pitted with smallpox and round, his looks mild and gentle, his eyes languid, not quick and sprightly, and his complexion upon the brown. His father was an Edinburgh tailor and had encouraged him to follow in his footsteps. His biographer suggests that due to his somewhat violent and disagreeable nature, Captain Porteous was sent to join the army instead, a Scots regiment in Holland. After many years abroad, he returns to Scotland during the famous Jacobite rebellions and, as an army veteran, is quickly recruited to the city guard. His experience and particular talents mean he is quickly promoted to the rank of captain. His biographer keenly describes Captain Porteous as cruel and harsh, even towards his own men, and points out he has complete contempt for the Edinburgh mob. I think Captain Porteous's unknown biographer did a bit of a hatchet job on him. After all, the Edinburgh mob were known to be violent and troublesome. They did not respond well to authority. They were infamously difficult to handle, and due to numerous run-ins with Captain Porteous, there was no love lost between them. However, this mutual animosity, perhaps even hatred, was to prove disastrous 
as the final plans are put in place for Wilson's execution. The ultimate responsibility for the safety of the city lies with Alexander Wilson, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh. The Lord Provost is Edinburgh's civic head and its Lord Lieutenant. This is a role somewhat similar to that of a modern-day mayor, and is an ancient title dating back to the 13th century. At the time of this execution, the Lord Provost is also Commander-in-Chief of the City Guard. He expects trouble with the Edinburgh mob, and arranges to meet Captain Porteous just two days before the execution. He expects every precaution to be taken to avoid a rescue, and insists that every member of the city guard is called into action. In an unprecedented step, he informs General Moyle, commander of the King's forces in Scotland, that he is commandeering the King's troops. As a result, 150 men and two captains are ordered to enter the city and oversee the Edinburgh mob. The day before the execution, the atmosphere is even more tense, and the Lord Provost is still concerned that the city hangman may be kidnapped by the Edinburgh mob to prevent the execution going ahead. Security around the city is increased to the highest level, and he keeps the hangman in the tollbooth jail for his own protection. His mindset is clear. This execution must proceed. Finally, the ultimate step is taken, and the Lord Provost orders the city treasurer to furnish the city guard with powder and shot, and such other ammunitions as may be necessary for the use of the men in maintaining the peace of the town and supporting the execution of the laws. The grass market at the foot of the West Bow has always been a bustling marketplace and is one of the oldest parts of Edinburgh. While some of the architecture has changed over the years, to this day it retains its open space and historic character. However, one part of the grass market holds a darker history, as this was the preferred location for public executions and the site chosen for the hanging of Wilson. The gallows were mounted in a massive block of sandstone with a triangular hole in the middle, which served as a permanent socket for the gibbet. The spot is marked today by a cross formed by paving stones in the centre of the street. The Lord Provost is clearly anticipating a showdown between authority and the Edinburgh mob. The grass market has been prepared for the execution and the city guard are armed, dangerous and up for a fight. What will happen on the day of the execution? After a hearty lunch, Captain Porteous, along with his men, marched to the toll booth to pick up Wilson and escort him to the grass market. Newspapers delighted in reporting that Captain Porteous behaved with much barbarity to his helpless prisoner. It seemed that the manacles are too small for Wilson's wrists, and Captain Porteous is seen by the crowds squeezing them to the exquisite torture of the miserable prisoner. When Wilson complains... Captain Porches is heard to say, no matter, your torment will soon be at an end. What Captain Porches didn't seem to realise is that taking out his frustration on the people's hero was only likely to add fuel to the fire and intensify the Edinburgh mob's hatred of him. His taunting of the prisoner was to prove to be extreme provocation.
Captain Porteous marches up the lawn market to the top of the Royal Mile. Although the crowd are lining the streets heading to the grass market, they are quiet as he turns left down into West Bow. As he and his men march to the site of the execution, they are confronted by an enormous crowd. Public hangings were often well attended, but this was on a different and more terrifying scale. The streets and buildings are overflowing with tens of thousands of onlookers. The grass market is teeming and the tall Edinburgh tenements are overflowing, people spilling out of the windows and doors. Captain Porteous and his men now understand just how revered the spite smuggler Wilson is and how his earlier attempts to escape from custody have only served to make him more popular with the Edinburgh mob. Perhaps the city guard now realise they are putting to death a hero, whilst the mob are hoping for another daring escape attempt by Wilson. People shout at Captain Portis and his men, ridiculing their cocked hats and military cloaks. There is a continuous roar of catcalls, laughter and yells, and increasing threats of violence directed at Captain Porteous. He and his men surround the gallows to protect the hangman. The Edinburgh mob fall quiet, seeing that he is protected by armed men and there is no opportunity to interrupt the execution. The hangman places a noose around Wilson's neck, who prepares himself for the drop. The trap door opens and Wilson falls. If his neck is not broken, he faces death by strangulation. Wilson struggles and twists, and as he nears death, his body shakes and trembles. A condemned man is usually left hanging for 30 minutes or so, and is only cut down once a magistrate gives the orders to do so by pointing a white rod out of a window. As the crowd stays silent watching Wilson hanging and swaying in the wind, the local magistrates, delighted with their afternoon's work, walk to a nearby tavern for their customary meal after an execution. Wilson has been hanging for only a few minutes when the hangman sees a window opening. He's highly anxious and mistakes us for the order to cut down Wilson. He climbs a ladder to remove the body, and this breaks a spell. The Edinburgh mob suddenly erupts. They are savage and bitter. The anger of the crowd is unimaginable. They yell and shake their fists. They are like drunkards lunging for the gibbet, roughly pushing people aside. And those who cannot move out of the way fast enough are shoved to the ground and trampled. Voices are raised to a deafening crescendo with men shouting and screaming. The crowd seem larger and denser and throw stones at the hangman, hitting him and cutting his face. Now injured and bleeding, he quickly leaves the body of Wilson, rushing from the gallows and hiding behind a city guard for protection. The Edinburgh mob move onto the gallows and cut the body down. They attempt to resuscitate Wilson, but it is too late. The crowd are furious. The hangman has done his job well. The atmosphere dramatically changes. The crowds are now belligerent and confrontational. Mayhem ensues. The Edinburgh mob throw a barrage of earth, feces, 
stones and heavy rocks at the city guard, breaking bones and causing serious injuries. This is a ferocious assault. The mob are out for revenge. Although the city guard are outnumbered and fear for their lives, they know they have a job to do. The Lord Provost has commanded them to maintain the peace and support the execution of the laws. The Lord Provost saw the potential for violence and they armed them with powder and shot. Their guns are primed, loaded and levelled at the mob. Please stay with me, Adrian Muir-Smith, as we continue with the story of the Porteous Riots. In the next episode, you'll hear how the city guard responded to this attack. During the rioting, many were injured, and it was inevitable that somebody would be held accountable. This series of podcasts has been possible due to the support of so many individuals. Thanks to Arlene Anderson, Ronnie Renucci QC, Andy Houston, Jeremy Fraser, David Campbell, Colin Mackay, Colin Henderson and Russell Lockland for contributing their voices to these tales. A huge thanks to Kirsty Archer-Thompson and Steve Penman who spent many hours reviewing the scripts and providing advice and support. And of course to the young and very talented musicians Nick Launer, Neve McIlvenny, Abigail Young, Joanna Dodds and Anne McClucky, and then a special large thanks to Jack McClucky, who wrote the music score and performed a violin, acoustic guitar, mandolin, banjo and vocals, as well as production and editing of The Black Dinner. And finally, to Martin and Jason Rennie for their outstanding editing and production of The Porteous Rides. To all listeners, please subscribe to these podcasts and be the first to enjoy new episodes as they are published.